Radio Drome. Another Radio Drome special. Here, this will actually be combining two interviews that were done with James Glickenhaus, the director of the Exterminator movies and Shakedown and the protector from Jackie Chan and numerous other great films. James Glickenhaus is one of the top action movie directors of the 1980s, I think, without a doubt. I don't think there's anybody who can dispute that. Now, the first of these interviews was done for a very, very early episode of Lost in the Static. The second of these interviews was done for Radiodrome. Brad Jones was supposed to be on this interview for the Radiodrome one, but his laptop literally fried 10 minutes before the interview, and he couldn't make it. So that's why it's just me. James Glickenhaus, you need to look up his work. James Glickenhaus is a fantastic filmmaker. You will love every single one of his films that you see. I'll just, I'll just let him tell it. Have we seen the last James Glickenhaus film? Or is, do you have another one in you? Oh, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I'm, I've been busy with a lot of other things and enjoying other things. But, yeah, I think at some point um, I very well may do another film. Um, I'm writing something now, and I'm just seeing where it goes. And if it turns out well, I think I uh, very well may make another film. Uh, what's the process for you to to make a film like that? Do you uh, have to go to a studio, or do you independently finance these? Because I notice most of your films, while they're released through studios, and this is a compliment, they very much feel like independent films. Yeah, well, all the films I did were financed independently, and um, we went to studios for distribution. Not all of them. I guess The Protector was financed by a studio. Um, and um, Time Master and Slaughter of the Innocents were partially financed by studios. And Shakedown was picked up by Universal. But it was financed um, before it was finished. And so if I were to make another film, I would just finance it independently and uh, make it and uh, figure out the distribution. But um, the thing that I think that would intrigue me about making a new film is, you know, much like when I started off uh, 100 years ago, we were starting off with Super 16 and blowing that up to 35 and things like that. I mean, there's so many new technologies now um, that enable you to make films really much less expensively. Than would you embrace those new technologies? Like, would you shoot on digital or would you still try to f shoot on film film? I think it would depend. I mean, whatever made the most sense at the most time. But I think the thing that would intrigue me now would be shooting a film, frankly, with no special effects. I mean, the one thing that's happened, and I don't know if it's simply that as you get older, you get cranky. Um, but, you know, now with visual special effects, I have great trouble um, believing anything you see anymore. You know, you can do anything. You can uh, have someone... Uh, performing uh, Swan Lake Ballet on the Moon, if you want, and make it look realistic. Um, so if I did make another film, I'd kind of like to go backwards and make a film where there were very little, if any, special effects. I mean, obviously you'd have fade-outs or um, things like that, but um, I think it'd be interesting to try to just tell a story of the way films used to be, because, you know, interestingly enough, um, when I fell in love with film, that's that's really what they were. They were much more um, standard deliver type filmmaking, and story was really the essence of it. It was sort of like sitting around a campfire and telling a story to people, and if it was a good story, it hooked them. And now it's almost like, you know, you have to tip the Eiffel Tower over into the Taj Mahal and miss the heroine's head by two inches as she's, you know, kissing Tom Cruise or, you know, no one's going to go see it. But that kind of stuff, frankly, doesn't interest me much. It's a different filmmaking world now than when you were making them in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's not better or worse, it's just different. But I do think that there, there might be a place for a story. Um, and also, you know, as I watch films from the 60s particularly, I see films that you couldn't possibly make today, like Five Easy Pieces with Jack Nicholson or, you know, Once Upon a Time in America by Sergio Leone, where you just luxuriate in um, photography and uh, grimaces and close-ups on faces, and you take a long time to tell the story. Um, today, I don't think audiences have any tolerance for letting things unfold, you know, they want it to be slam-bam, continuous, 
excitement. So um, if I did a film, I think I'd just like to go back a bit and try it the way things were done. But, um, you know, I'm very busy with everything I'm doing now. I'm, I have the family business, the Wall Street business, which I'm running, which keeps me occupied. I have a lot of hobbies. I'm in the automotive world uh, with uh, Ferrari and racing and things like that. So I'm, you know, I'm busy and I'm happy. And, uh, but at some point, yeah, I'd like to make another film. Well, I can tell you as a fan, we'd like you to make another film. Well, good. So. There you go. But like what you were saying right before segs into my next question of a movie like Exterminator. I don't think Exterminator could be made today the way you made it in 1980 because it is so brutal, it is so realistic, and you took the time to deal with the characters and the story as well as the more shocking elements, which today I think would focus almost exclusively on just the shocking elements. What do you think? Well, the Exterminator really came out about, um, you know, thinking about the world at the time. I mean, at the time, there was a great frustration that people felt um, with the judicial system. You know, crack cocaine had sort of run rampant through New York City, and there were some very violent, nonsensical crimes that really uh, made people feel very ill at ease. And, you know, my hope was to make a film where the hero... You know, it was not a prototypical uh, Charles Bronson death wish or, or Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry, um, but was just an every man who found himself just pushed you far. It also, you know, when it began, I mean, um, you know, Ginty, he wasn't looking to be an avenging angel. It sort of was something that got thrust upon him and took on a life of its own, and he felt a great uh, relief, if you will, in um, seeking justice uh, for First his initially his friend and for other people. But I think it was, um, you know, it was a pretty antisocial movie. I mean, in some foreign territories, they had a lot of trouble with. Um, Ginty um, living, you know, and surviving, and um, in some territories, like uh, they actually cut the end off where he came out of the water at the Statue of Liberty alive, and they sort of left it like he was shot. He went in the water and was dead. Um, so it was a very, for some reason, it was seen as a very political film. I wasn't really trying to make a political film or statement. I was just trying to deal with the basic uh, feelings of rage that I think people felt when they heard of these crimes. And, and all of the crimes and things that I picked in The Exterminator were basically just taken from the newspaper. They were <clears throat> things that either had happened or certainly could have happened. And to me, I was like dealing in a genre, you know, faction, which is it's not true, but it could be true. Well, that's part of what I liked about Exterminator is – the, the brutality is so real, even though, and this is something that I've, I'm hoping was an artistic decision, that there's really nothing on camera. You know, you all, all the brutality is implied, and that makes it so much worse for the audience than if you'd hostile style actually show these people being raped and the, the, the soldering iron on the prostitute and things like that, that you left it to the audience's imagination, and that's actually worse slash better for the film, I think. Yeah, that was a very intentional artistic choice. I mean, it, you know, there were a lot of films around the time that were called, quote, slasher films or were incredibly violent and graphic. And um, that's really not what The Exterminator was. I mean, I think that The Exterminator was actually a much more mainstream film than people realized. And I think that... the the reason it did well at the box office was because it was a, it was a regular movie. I mean, it wasn't just like a slasher movie, just going after a slasher audience. Um, it got a lot of people, a lot of Vietnam vets liked the film a lot because I think it was the first time that it dealt with a Vietnam vet um, in a way that talked about the uh, stress that these guys had been subjected to in Vietnam which was exacerbated when they came home and they really weren't heroes. Right. So this was one of, the, one of the first wars where guys came back from Vietnam and um, they were sort of yelled at. 
And the interesting thing is, is that the the people that went to Vietnam I mean, were just middle America guys, you know, who didn't have money to get out of it by going to school or or whatnot or getting some doctor to say they had a bum knee, and they went over there, and they got caught up in this sort of nightmare. Um, but I don't think people in the United States realize just how nightmarish it was. Um, you know, I think when um, the flashback. Apocalypse Now came out, you, you got a little bit of a sense of it, of just the insanity of it. But Apocalypse Now was kind of um, the story of Joseph Conrad's, you know, uh, it was taken from, from Joseph Conrad, that, that story, um, that stuff. But to me, I was just trying to say, what if someone had been subjected to that, tried to put it behind them, and then just it sort of flashed before their eyes again. Could they be set off? And I guess that's what the exterminator was to me. Well, and then it also shows that that sleazy New York 42nd Street before they cleaned it up, which I just watched uh, Shakedown again last night, and that does the same thing. It shows New York the way it really used to be down there. Yeah, that's, you know, it's funny. that I think Shakedown is probably the last film that was shot down there that shows it as it was. You know, today it's Disneyland. I mean, Times Square is really Disneyland. It's been completely cleaned up. It's, you know, uh, and it, it's Broadway shows as entertainment. I mean, oddly enough, the theater in Shakedown, the New Amsterdam that we film in, um, is now where Lion King plays. And also, I think that um, it's so cleaned up and so touristy that the um, ambiance that was in Shakedown and, you know, the movie theater with all the crack vials on the floor where Sam Elliott is and stuff like that and, you know, the blood banks, sperm banks just like right on the street and the porno movie theaters and things, that's all that's all gone and probably gone forever. And, um, look, things changed, but I, I kind of thought that was pretty interesting. I mean, as a young kid, I remember going down to the Deuce, 42nd Street, and, you know, seeing two double feature movies for, you know, a buck, good movies, and then going out and getting some food and coming home and, and, and really kind of liking the energy of 42nd Street in its, you know, underbelly, nasty way. Um, and the stunt, in those days, you used to actually film the stunts. I mean, you crashed the cars and you didn't use any special effects and things. And, and that was some shoot. I mean, we shot that live on 42nd Street and shut down 42nd Street from midnight to 6 in the morning for two nights in a row. It took 200 cops to do that. I mean, it was pretty big. Um, you know, Did thing. you get trouble from them? And I don't think anybody's done that since or frankly will do it since because, you know, now they would just do it with special effects and shoot it uh, on the back lawn. Did you get any trouble from the police since the movie's about corrupt cops? No, you know, it's interesting. I thought it might... Um, but a lot of the – first of all, the guys that were the movie cops <clears throat> were, you know, a friendly, more rock and roll bunch of guys. So they didn't take anything personally. But the other thing was is that um, the real cops hated these crooked cops as much as anyone did because they really ran amok through the New York City Police Department before the NAP Commission and destroyed it. And destroy, and you know there was a lot of good, honest cops who got embroiled in things, got killed um, by bad cops and gangsters, you know, being tipped off and things. So I thought I, I was a little worried about it when we started, but it turned out to be a complete non-issue. Um, and I always had very good relationships with the police. That really went back to all the shooting I did in New York City, so they knew me, and and they enjoyed. You know, they enjoyed these big stunt movies. And uh, everybody had a good time, so it wasn't an issue. Well, it was Blue a... Jean Cop was taken, uh, that was the original title of it, Universal Change It to Shaken. Um, but that was taken from a true newspaper story where, you know, a guy was arrested for killing an undercover cop. And, um, you know, he said, hey, and this is what happened. The guy came up to buy drugs for me and said, give me your money. And I thought he was robbing me. He didn't identify himself as a cop. And I shot. And I said, oh, yeah, bullshit. And then I said, wait a minute, maybe what if it's true? And that's where the story for Shakedown came out. 
Well, speaking of something you just brought up, like Universal changing the title on you and that, have you had any real problems with uh, censorship or the distribution studios altering your movies to the point where you start to get angry? You know, it is what it is. I mean, studios, when they distribute your films, um, spend an enormous amount of money on the release and uh, they pay you back the cost of it and whatnot. So they're obviously entitled to have some kind of input. Um, I didn't really agree with them changing the title. And I also, um, they had a, they had a hole in their schedule where they had to put out a film in May. And I really had to hurry and finish the film. And to be honest with you, if I'd had some more time, I would have reworked the ending and some of the things on the end with the jet and stuff, which I think got a little bit over the top. And I think it would have worked a little better. But having said that, um, that was why I made films independently. So I sort of made them. And then at the end, I went looking for distribution. And, um, you know, I listen, every day wasn't a day at the beach, but... Uh, all in all, I enjoyed my time making films. The only thing that changed is, you know, it was a lot more fun when you were 20 years old getting hooked up actresses out of Winnebago's than when you were 40, you know. Um, when you're 40, and, you don't want to deal with that anymore, huh? Yeah, and then, you know, Dino De Laurentiis said to me, Jim, when you can get into all the parties, you won't want to go. And there was some truth in that, too, that um, the film business... I mean, I lived in New York, so I would get woken up by Europe, and I would get kept on the phone till 1 in the morning, New York time, by California. And it was just, I was always under crisis. And then one year, I, I slept in hotels 200 nights. Damn. And I just said, you know, enough. This is, I mean, I had fun. I did well. We made a lot of money. I had this family thing that I had to deal with one day, and I just said, you know what? I'm going to do that and uh, go in at nine and come back at five and uh, have some hobbies and enjoy myself. So, Well, you seem like you're doing that. One thing I would be remiss in not asking you about the Simpsons McBain issue. Um, you know, I used the, <clears throat> I took the character, the name McBain from um, Sergio Leone film once upon a time in America. <clears throat> that was the name of the farmer, the character in the beginning who was killed by the gang and who Claudia Cardinelli had come, Mrs. McBain, to marry. Um, and because I really liked these, uh, I liked um, Leone. I, I, he really liked The Exterminator. He wrote me about it. And, you know, we had some nice correspondence and things. And um, I don't, you know, I think what happened with The Simpsons is I think they, weirdly enough, pick that name and did that thing before they realized my film was coming out. A lot of people think that it was um, connected in some way to me. It was a comment on me. I, I don't think it was. The timing of it was um, <clears throat> such that they, they really couldn't have known about my film, McBain, when they did that. So, so I noticed I, after your film came out, they Excuse stopped me? using McBain, McBain. Excuse me? I said, like, after your film came out, they stopped calling the character McBain. Was that illegal? Yeah, I, or? I think what happened was um, the studio that was distributing McBain, and, and weirdly enough, that was 20th Century Fox, right? So I, I think in some foreign territories, some of their... It, they may have even picked up some of the distribution rights. So I think what happened was someone up top said, "Look, there, there's no reason to to do this. You're not you're not commenting on the movie McBain. They they weren't comment. They never seen the movie McBain. So um, it, it came like their thinking. It looked like they had, and they're responding to it. But you have to realize they have a lot of lead time in making something. So they probably made those episodes, and then I think some lawyer. It, it really." It really was. I don't think it came from me. I mean, I didn't care, you know, what people said or thought or any connection they made. But I think that one of their lawyers said, "Look, it may be seen that you're like knocking his movie 
and it really was quite different. I mean, you know, McBain wasn't the kind wasn't like an Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator movie. Oh yeah, Hawkins' character was nothing like the Simpsons character. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So I think they took a look at it and they said, "Whoa, you know." And McBain got a very good review in the L.A. Times, um, which I think gave them pause. You know, they said, yeah, we're, "We're, you know, this is we're going in the wrong direction with this," and they they stopped. Another thing I would say is. Now, your films all have a very distinct feel to them. I mean, seriously, if, if somebody walks into one of your films halfway through and they don't see the credits, they can look at it and go, this feels like a Glickenhaus film. Do you do that? I mean, is it something intentionally that you, you make all your films with a certain style? Because you make so many different types of films, I think it would be hard to stylistically get them all like that, but they all feel like a Glickenhaus film. Well, yeah, I think I think it's intentional that I I have a way of looking at the world, and I had a way of directing the camera men and the camera and the actors. Look, my films to me, I really try to tell visual stories, and um, I tried. You know, my goal was sort of almost if you could have a silent film that you could still understand it, that you could still watch it, you could still understand it. And um, it probably was something that made it um, difficult for people to understand at some point because, you know, the plots, I assumed that visually they were going to make all the connective tissue and put it all together. And in reality, they had trouble doing it sometimes. Um, you know, in some of the other films like uh, Time Master, it just got too complicated for a lot of people. And that was really aimed at kids. So it even became harder because young people had trouble figuring it out. But, you know, I think Slaughter of the Innocents um, was one that didn't completely rely on uh, dialogue. And I just, I, I tried to have the continuity. But I think if you look at good filmmakers throughout time, you get the same feeling. I mean, you would certainly know a Sergio Leone film. I think you know a Francis Ford Coppola film, um, you know, and some of the, uh, some of the, French directors, I mean, Fellini or um, those guys, you know, you would know that it was their film. I mean, they, they, and there is another thing. A lot of my films are really the same, about the same character. I mean, Eastwood, The Exterminator was McBain, was sort of, could have been Scott Glenn in Slaughter of the Innocents if things had been differently. Maybe one of the you know, maybe Jesse in some of the films was one of their sons, sort of. And and this was something that I do think they were connected. You know, the only one that was completely sort of an assigned film to me was was the Jackie Chan film, where they came to me, they said, look, we want to make a film with Jackie Chan. Could you write a script? And, and it was really an assignment. It wasn't something that I came up with. Do you own any of the, your films, or are they owned by... Other people, because I'm thinking. Oh no, of... no, I own I own uh, 17 films, and and I still distribute. As a matter of fact, we're remastering them all as we speak. Um, we just made a DVD deal, a high def deal, and um, when I say I own them, you know, some some have been licensed. Like uh, Shakedown in the U.S. is licensed to Universal. I own the foreign rights. McBain, I own Slaughter of the Innocents, Time Master, The Exterminator, uh, The Soldier. I don't own. That was done for a studio. That was done for. Avco Embassy, which became Dino De Laurentiis, which became Warner Brothers. That was, but I, I wrote and directed and produced that film, but I don't own the rights to it anymore. Um, and Protector, I don't own the rights to. But the other ones I do, and then I also own the films I produced, like with Frank Henenlotter, you know, the Basket Case Twos and those. Ones. How about like Exterminator Two, the sequel? No, I had nothing to do with that. Um, you know, there was a childhood friend who worked with me on the Exterminator. When we finished The Exterminator, um, to be honest, I really wanted to go in a different direction. And um, you know, he had this vision to, to make Exterminator 2, and I licensed the rights to them to make Exterminator 2. But I had nothing to do with it. Mr. Glickenhaus, my name is Scott, and I'm uh, Josh's co-host. I've been kind of clandestinely listening in. Um, thanks again uh, from me for talking to us. I, I'll admit I don't have the uh, film history knowledge that Josh has, but I kind of have a, a couple of questions that I ask just about anybody, and that is, 
if you were going to recommend one movie to someone, be it one of yours or or somebody else's, but if you were going to recommend one movie to for someone to watch, which one would that be? I would say Gino Pontecorvo's um, The Battle of Algiers is really an important movie if you're interested in film to watch because um, that is a film about uh, Algeria and the French, and it's creepily connected to what's going on now between the U.S. and uh, and Afghanistan and Iraq. But the, the reason that I would mention that film is because not one frame of that film is a is documentary it was a hundred percent staged, and it you would bet your kidneys it was a documentary tour, tour de force of filmmaking. And and lastly, do you have any projects? You said you're remastering your films and you're going to be releasing them on DVD. Have you got anything else uh, you can take a couple of moments and and plug a project of yours or anything like that if you want? Um, no, I you know it's just it's just my library is going to be released and. Uh, you know, one fine day, I'll finish the script I'm working on, and I'll shoot it, and uh, hopefully some of you guys will see it. That was the Lost in the Static interview. Now, here is the one that was on Radio Drum. One of the biggest things in my mind right now is the Shapiro Glickenhaus Productions. Can you give us any info on the ones that are not on DVD, like Moontrap and Pledge Night? Those were films that were made by other producers that we picked up the distribution rights to in various foreign territories and on um, through our video label, which was distributed through Universal, MCA Universal. So after a period of time, uh, those rights probably expired and went back to the producers. So that's why they're not being re-released by us. Okay, because I just I watched Moontrap on VHS the other day, and I noticed the Shapiro Glickenhaus logo at the front, and I just went, "Oh, why isn't this on DVD?" Yeah, we um, we didn't make the film; some other producers made it, and we picked it up um, in post production and had the rights to it for many years, and that uh, after a period of time, those rights lapsed. So that's the reason. Okay. Well, a couple of things I'd like to ask you about is some of the, we, we talked a lot the last time about the movies you directed, but there, there's a lot of really interesting movies you just produced. Can you tell me a little bit about like how you got involved with Maniac Cop? Well, I knew uh, Bill Lustig for many years. Um, as a New York filmmaker, we were in the, we had offices in the same building and we met. And it's at one point, uh, Bill came to me and asked me, if um, I would produce this movie, and uh, I agreed to do it. Um, You know, Bill was an interesting guy. To be honest with you, after a while, I really kind of lost interest in um, some of the things he did and some of his business practices, so I, I really severed my relationship with him after Maniac Cop, and I sold the rights to uh, further Maniac Cop to another company because I just had no interest in dealing with Bill anymore. Well, was it the same way with Hentenlotter? Because I noticed you you worked with Hentenlotter a lot on Frankenhooker and a few of the... No, no, uh, not at all. Uh, Frank is a friend. I like him very much. I admire him. I think he's a very creative filmmaker and I enjoyed working with him and uh, continued to work with him for a long time. Well, he he doesn't have you know, and I I disagree with this. So this is not an insult at all. He doesn't seem to have a lot of fond memories of Basket Case Three. Are you in that same boat, or I'm not sure why, um, particularly. It it certainly didn't have to do with me. I mean, Frank and I are friends to this day. I acted in one of his films that he did. I think the last film he did, Bad Biology. Well, I, I just meant like I read an interview where he said he's proud of Basket Case 1 and 2 and he kind of wishes he hadn't made 3. And I thought that was a really strange comment because I thought 3 was a good movie. Yeah, I like 3. I mean, who knows? You know, people, all of us say things in interviews that are maybe not completely thought out or maybe he feels that way, but you could just get in touch with him and ask him directly. But it, it certainly wasn't the kind of thing where I had no interest in ever working with him again. 
which uh, did happen with Lustig. I mean, Lustig, I just lost all interest in. I, I didn't think he was particularly honorable, and um, I just had no interest in working with him again. Well, when it comes to like the Hentenlotter stuff, Bat the Basket Case movies and Frankenhooker, they have a huge cult following, and a lot of people don't seem to realize that that you produced those. And when I pointed out to people, when I said I'm going to be talking to James Glickenhaus, they're like, oh, the exterminator guy? And I'm like, yeah, and also Frankenhooker. And they're like, oh, wow, really? Well, what happened was that Shapiro Glickenhaus, you know, we set that up to um, distribute other films than mine and to work with filmmakers who I enjoyed working with. And I certainly enjoyed working with Frank and I, Liked working on Frank and Hooker. Um, one of the songs from Frank and Hooker, Never Say No, I actually wrote and uh, performed on. Um, so I liked working with Frank a lot. It was just that uh, I didn't like working with Lustig and had no further interest in ever working with him again. Not to take this too negative, but a listener asked us to ask you about The Protector. And supposedly they read something you you didn't get along with Jackie Chan or you had problems with the studio on The Protector. You know, that's something that's, that sort of came out in a later interview with Jackie Chan. Um, I never felt that way at the time, and frankly, I'm not sure Jackie felt that way at the time. We had a difference of opinion in that I wanted to make a film that I felt could work in the world market, not just as a Hong Kong karate film, um, which is most of his films had been. Now, he was the star of The Protector. You know, Jackie went on and had some international success, but never, frankly, as a star. It was much more as a second banana with another actor like Owen Wilson or something like that. Um, and one of the problems with Jackie was he never spoke English very well. And he sort of could parrot the script, but he didn't really understand English well enough to understand the nuances of what a script was or acting in English. And I had some issues with that. But frankly, when we shot it, um, I enjoyed it. I think Jackie enjoyed it. He was very friendly. We worked well together. I think afterwards, he wanted to redo some of the films, uh, some of the fight scenes to make them more extravagant or more Hong Kong, if you will. And I had no interest in that, so I gave them the studio permission to go and bring in, I think Jackie expanded some of the fight scenes and um, he made a, quote, Asian version of the film, which I saw and I didn't think was very good, you know, the fights. I mean, they, they just got silly and boring. But be that as it may, you know, I think this is also one thing that gets blown up uh beyond really what it was. I certainly had no problem with Raymond Chow or Golden Harvest and uh, any of the foreign distributors who uh, we sold the film to were very happy with it. And, you know, Jackie didn't like it for the Asian markets and he changed it a little, but... Uh, well, and yeah, you've had, you've had a lot of success overseas. There are a lot of people... I mean, you told me before that The Exterminator just did huge numbers overseas, correct? Yeah, well, a lot of my films did very probably did more business overseas than they did in the United States, although some were successful in the United States. Uh, Slaughter of the Innocents did well in the United States. Um, the Shakedown did very well in the United States, um, especially in home video and television. And um, The Exterminator did well, and The Soldier didn't do badly either uh, in the United States. So, but. The Protector did much better in foreign territories, and other films I did did as well. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the DVDs that are out, and I'm not sure what the ownership status is on some of these films for you, but like McBain, the DVD is uh, lacking to to say anything else. It's a crappy full-frame, at least the copy I have, is a crappy full-frame print that looks like it was sourced right off of a VHS tape. And there are no extras. Yeah, that that's not the new one. There's a new version of McBain that's coming out that's going to be Blu-ray 
really mastered well, and there is an entire narration by me on it. I just finished it. So that should be coming out soon. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to that. It's better than... Because I, I found it funny. A friend of mine used to own a video store, and they'd get all those you know preview tapes. Mm-hmm. And the preview tape of McBain he has actually has a 10-minute making of special on it. And I'm like, why isn't that on the DVD then? Yeah, I believe it will be. So you're just looking at a previous generation DVD that we recently redid and are re-releasing. Okay. Well, and then what's the status of Shakedown Cause, uh, or, or Blue Jean Cop as for our foreign listeners? Um, are we going to get a good special edition of that as well? Because I'd love to hear well, your that's thoughts. Well, the on... U.S. rights are owned by MCA Universal. So that's a question you'd really have to ask them. I have no control over it. Um, I don't own the U.S. rights to uh, Shakedown. We sold that off to Universal. Okay. Because I, I bought a foreign DVD of that under the title Blue Jean Cop, and that was also full frame. Yet I've seen copies of Shakedown on like Showtime or, or something like that widescreen, so I know there are widescreen prints out there. Yeah, I, I this is something, once again, you'd have to ask Universal. I'm not sure why they did that, but... Uh... You know, look, it was a film they released, they had a success, they made money from it, but um, they have tons of films, and I'm not sure that in the scheme of things it was all that important to them. I think it's one of I think it's a great film. I think it's one of your best films personally. I, I think I think Peter Weller and Sam Elliott are are just amazing in the film and it, there are all these little nuances that you put in the movie like just at the beginning of the film when he's listening to I think it's Jimi Hendrix and his much younger girlfriend has no idea who it is that sort of exasperated sigh he lets out. It, that's a very Glickenhaus little thing. Oh yeah, no I like that film a lot. And um, I'm very proud of it, and it did real well. And uh, and Universal still sells uh, sells it on video, and they put it on television and stuff. So, but they have the rights in perpetuity in the U.S. on it. Well, and then also that was uh, you told me last time one of the last films to be shot on the old 42nd Street. Can you talk about shooting there a little bit? Well, you know, the the deuce was a lot different than it is today. I mean, now it's very Disney-esque and uh, retail-oriented and tourist-oriented. Back then, it was really kind of uh, a little bit gritty and uh, impoverished. And, um, you know, poor New Yorkers went there to see double features and eat at uh, fast food restaurants. I mean, now people from Kansas come to shop in the M&M store. So it's a bit different. Um, and... I think that Shakedown really is, if you look at that chase scene that we did at the New Amsterdam Theater, I don't think there's anything like that anymore existent at the old 42nd Street. Did you run into any problems while shooting there with, with some of the, since it was not the best neighborhood with some of the the locals as it is? Well, it was a massive operation. I mean, we had 200 police and we shut down 42nd Street between Broadway and um, 8th Avenue, which uh, was, you know, a huge on-location shoot. And you have to remember, this was really before huge use of um, CGI and special effects that were computer-generated. So we actually shot that. I mean, there's no special effects um, that where we computer-generated images. All those stunts we did, all those crashes we did. So it was sort of the, the end of an era for that type of filmmaking. Did the cops cooperate with you? I mean, did they give you any crap over, oh, I can't believe we have to be down here for a movie? No, no. They lie. The, the, the movie and, and television division of the New York City Police was great. I had a great relationship with them. They loved working on my films. And they were very helpful and, and, and really helped uh, all levels of filmmakers make movies. Well, and then uh, you, you worked in New York a lot, uh, shooting on location, did you run into the same kind of cooperation with shooting The Exterminator, since that was so many years prior? I did. I mean, uh, John Lindsay set up the movie and television division of the uh, police, and it would be other mayors who followed. Uh, Dinkins and Giuliani uh, followed with very good, very strong film commissioners and um, liaisons with the police and other people. And we had a wonderful experience shooting on location in New York. It was expensive, but it was terrific. There's that one scene in The Exterminator before Ginty picks up the prostitute that's been burned. 
and he's walking down. Did you get everyone's permission? Because some of those people don't really look like they know that they're being shot for a movie, some of the background people. Well, here, here's the thing with it. Um, so a lot of those people who look that way are, in fact, are extras, and they were scripted and directed by me. So even though it looks that way, we had a lot of extras on the scene, and there was no one who was featured who wasn't, in fact, um, one of our extras. But the the other people, you know, if you're in a public place and you post that you're filming, they don't have the same right of privacy that they would if you went into a private place and shot them. Now, with The Exterminator and Robert Ginty, what was it like working with him? Because he seems like one of those actors that is just, he, that he's on board for anything is what it seems like with Ginty. Uh, Bob was, uh, <clears throat> you know, a very good actor. I think he did a terrific job in The Exterminator. Um, and I think he did a terrific job in Coming Home and in his television work with uh, Robert Conrad. Uh, and he was up for anything, and I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, when The Exterminator was done, I really wanted to move on to something else, and I really wasn't interested in, in making a sequel to it. And the person who had uh, worked with me on The Exterminator was interested, so I sold him the rights, and he went on and made Exterminator 2. And I actually never worked again with Ginty, but I, I liked Bob, and I stayed friendly with him over the years, and I certainly would have worked with him. Um, the sad thing about Bob was is that he had a tremendous success in Exterminator. And personally, I think that if he had, if he had, had a better agent and slowed down and relaxed, he could have gotten some very big, important acting gigs. But I think he immediately capitalized on that success and made a bunch of fairly terrible movies, including Exterminator 2. And uh, I think that hurt his career. Do you think, like you just brought up Exterminator 2, do you think that movie, and I, I'm not going to say it's a bad movie, but it's definitely not as good as Exterminator. Do you, does that irritate you at all, that, that it sort of gets lumped in with that? Because I see a lot of reviews online that go, why would Glickenhaus make a sequel, and they don't seem to realize he didn't. No, it doesn't really irritate me. It is what it is. I mean, if people are that stupid that they think that I made Exterminator 2, what can I tell you? Now, are are we done with James Glickenhaus, or is there another picture in your future that you're going to direct? Because, and I say this completely honestly, your films have a certain style to them that even if you don't read the credits, if you miss the first five minutes of McBain or the first five minutes of Exterminator, and you come in after about ten minutes, you go, "This feels like a Glickenhaus production." Well, I think that's a good thing. I mean, even this summer in August um, in at the Tribeca Y, they're going to screen uh, The Soldier and McBain. And they earlier in the year screened The Exterminator and Shakedown. And it was great to talk to the audience and the young filmmakers starting out and who I think felt the way you just uh, talked about. Um, you know, I do have some ideas. I am writing a script now. So uh, who knows, you know, if I can get a script that I'm happy with, it's certainly possible I would direct another film. I mean, there's no reason that I couldn't or wouldn't. Um, but I just don't want to make a film just for the sake of making one. I mean, if I have a story that I feel is worth telling, um, I'll direct a film. But just to direct one for the sake of doing it, uh, I'm a little bit past that. Would you direct it in the way you did, say, Shakedown and the Exterminator, or would you would you use CGI if if you could, if it was easier than doing a stunt? Because I, I just have a feeling that that you'd go, no, I prefer actually blowing up a car. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair statement. Uh, I mean, I I think that the problem with CGI is is that it can create images that are so fantastic that nothing shocks or surprises people anymore the way um, a real stunt or real explosion does. And um, I think in the future, real stunts and, and real explosions will just be, you know, like watching a silent Charlie Chaplin film. But that's okay because... I really enjoy the way real stunts and real special effects look. And if I made another film, I'd, I'd make it the same way for sure. Well, and then I'm looking over your filmography, and there are two films you produced that I've 
haven't seen. Can you tell us a little bit about Ring of Steel and Tough and Deadly? Yeah, those were um, action-adventure films um, starring, I think one was starring uh, Billy Blanks, and uh, one was starring some guys uh, who were very good with swords. And at Shapiro Glickenhaus, we, we produced those films. I was involved in them a little, but not to a great extent. And it was really, quite honestly, to keep um, our distribution machine going. You know, it's a catch-22. If you set up a, an independent distributor, you need product. And you become a victim to you have to produce product to keep the machine going. And quite frankly, at the end, that was one reason that I moved on. I just was no longer interested in keeping this huge machine going uh, for the sake of keeping it going. And um, I had other things and I could do, and I went off and did them. Well, when when a movie says produced, like the Hent and Lauder stuff or Maniac Cop, or, or whatnot, how involved are you actually there on the set every day, or does it vary from picture to picture? Well, I think that in, in all of them I was listed as an executive producer, so I wasn't online on the set every day. But I was involved in them. With Frank, I really had a good collaborative uh, relationship, and um, I enjoyed working with him and giving him my two cents worth. And, you know, I wasn't offended if he didn't take my advice. And I think, you know, Frank... Um, responded to that. Uh, with other people, I was involved in the editing of them and the casting and, and the scripts and stuff. And I was involved, but um, I didn't make those films. Those aren't my films. They're, some, they're other people's films. So out of your films, obviously The Protector and Shakedown we've covered are owned by somebody else. Do you own all the rest of your, your films that you can release? Yeah, I own Shakedown, just not the U.S. rights. I own the worldwide rights to it. I own McBain, the worldwide rights, and uh, the Exterminator. The Soldier, um, we're not sure who owns that. It, it used to be Avco Embassy, and then it was Dino De Laurentiis, and then he went into bankruptcy. And where that library went, for a while it was with Warner Brothers, but I'm not sure if it still is. We're, we're trying to figure that out. Because I think it would be great if you could reacquire all of your films and release a James Glickenhaus collection. I think, at least I know, I'd be first in line to buy it. Yeah, well, we we've sort of done that in that we've you know we are doing working um, and have re-released in the new uh, the Exterminator, and we are doing Bane, and we're doing the Basket Case films that I feel very proud of, and we're doing. Um, Slaughter of the Innocents will probably do, and Time Master will do. So from that sense, those films will get out in a new great version. When can we look for that McBain? Does that have a release date yet? I just, they were just in New York, and I and I narrated the um, my commentary on the whole film, so I suspect it will be coming out soon. I, I actually really look forward to hearing that. I really enjoyed your commentary on The Exterminator. Great. Well, I, I enjoy doing it. I think it's important to give people an, an idea of what you were trying to accomplish. Thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to us and being so open with, with some of the le less than uh, positive questions I asked. Oh, not at all. I mean, uh, I'm very proud of what my films were, and I'm glad that people, you know, 30 years later are still interested in them. And uh, I have no problem with criticism or if people like them or don't like them. I mean, I I made these films for myself and my friends and people who understood them, and if other people didn't, that's fine. You guys need to check out Glickenhaus' movies, especially after hearing that. How could you not want to see Shakedown? How could you not want to see Exterminator? How could you not want to want, want to indulge in some of the, the best 80s action movies that there are? So check out James Glickenhaus' work. This has been another Radio Drum special. Guys, check out James Glickenhaus. Check out 1201beyond.com. You can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Have a good night, guys.
Radio Drone is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.